White Rocket Entertainment, podcast number 646. The White Rocket Babylon 5 Review Podcast is brought to you by people like you, our Patreon.com family. To join the ranks and help us keep the show going, visit www.b5review.com. That's www.b5review.com and click on the button to become a patron. It's the White Rocket Babylon 5 Review Podcast. Reviewing the entire Babylon 5 series, plus Crusade and everything else. Now here are your hosts, Van Allen Plexico and Andy Fix. Hey everybody, I am your host, Van Allen Plexico. My podcasting partner for this program, Andy Fix, is on assignment this week. I know, we all love Andy and we're going to miss him, but we have a lot to talk about. And rather than discussing another Babylon 5 episode without him, I felt it would be more appropriate for me to revisit some of the things that we didn't get to talk about last time, because that episode had to cover a lot of ground. I mean, it ended up running almost two hours long, even leaving out all of my notes. I left out 90% of my notes, and we still took two hours, just because we had so much that Andy and I had to debate and discuss and talk about. And believe me, there is still plenty to talk about from War Without End Parts 1 and 2. I figured I might get like a 10-minute episode out of this. No, I think we're going to be fine. So if you will... Bear with me here. Um, we will just kind of go through some, we'll tidy up some odds and ends. I also have some, uh, we had probably more listener or patron comments and questions and answers from this episode than anyone we've done so far. So there's a lot to cover, a lot to talk about. And then uh, hopefully uh, our next episode, Andy will be back and we will cover uh, the next episodes up on our list. In the meantime, let's dig around into some of the stuff we didn't get to talk about with War Without End Parts 1 and 2. And um, by the way, I am still in shock about how differently Andy and I saw and rated the two episodes. Great maker! So I'm curious. I don't think anybody wrote in and mentioned that. Um, So I'm curious uh, how you... I'm, I'm just curious how an outside person that's not me or Andy evaluated how we evaluated the episode so differently. Because I never in a million years would have guessed that we would see them that differently. In fact, I wish that you <laughs> could see the video, but I didn't record it. We, When Andy and I do this show, here's a little quick behind the scenes. Andy and I record this show using uh, StreamYard, which has live video, so we can see each other. And I like it that way because... Um, well, the main reason I use StreamYard is because I think it provides the best audio connection, better than Skype, better than you know other several uh, MS Teams or other uh, conferencing software. But it lets you record the video, and I, I like to use video when I talk with Andy because that way we can see each other's facial expressions and stuff, and I can watch his cats and their antics in the background, um, and occasionally in the foreground, like when the one turned off the... <laughs> Our link cut our cut our link off in the middle of our conversation, which was hilarious. But um, but also I wish you could have seen it because I mean seriously, my jaw was on my on my desktop here. 
I was just in shock. So I'm curious what you guys and gals all thought about that. All right, before we get into it then, we have to thank our great patrons who make this dream a reality. Um, They include Allison Rich, Colonel Dad, EJ Alexander, Leah G., Lisa Alexander, Psy Rating P30, yikes, I'm scared of her, Dragon Con Delin, Emmanuel Seaman, Mond06, Mond, I hope I'm saying your name right, um, by the way, I'm glad that there is a Dragon Con Delin so that I have to say the word Dragon Con even if I'm not going to talk about Dragon Con every episode, so there you go, uh, but I might talk about it. Michael O'Connor, Stu Parker, Comrade Sheridan, aka Blab Along Guy, um, Heather and Yancey Steingrabber, Ice Cream Clone with a Boba Fett head, and Michael Halbrook. Those are our great patrons, and we love every one of you. We love all of you listeners, even the ones that are not patrons. We just really appreciate the ones that, that do so much to help keep our show going on top of everything else. So thank you to all of our listeners, but thanks especially to those who take that added step of becoming patrons. If you would like to join them and become a patron too, just go to www.b5review.com, www.b5review.com. I need to update that page. Uh, you can also just go to patreon.com and log in and uh, search for White Rocket Reviews. And uh, you'll be on there, and uh, you can leave comments and questions. And you also get access to these episodes several days, usually before the general audience. I post them. I see what I do is we record them on usually Wednesday night. And I, I do all the engineering and editing on them by Thursday, hopefully, usually every two weeks. And then I go ahead and schedule them to go up Monday morning, like first thing in the morning. But for the patrons, I go ahead and just drop them on the Patreon page immediately. So the patri- patrons have these episodes usually like, no, usually no later than Friday, sometimes Thursday. And if things are really going well, Wednesday night. But that's pretty rare, usually by Friday. Now, if something's going on, it's Sunday or something, and I feel really bad. But I get them up as quick as I can. Okay, so www.b5review.com. Click on the button to become a patron. Thank you so much. Now, um, one question that one of our patrons did have, Mondo6, asked about the list of Babylon 5 books that Andy mentioned. And I found a couple of them online. I'm sure Wikipedia has one. I'm sure that, uh, and I know that uh, the Lurker's Guide does, although it hasn't been updated in a long time. So it didn't even have the release dates for the last two books, and they came out 20 years ago. But if you go to https colon slash slash, I'll read this again, babylon5.fandom.com slash wiki slash capital in novel underscore list. And that's a crazy URL to try to say over the air. But if you just, if you will Google Babylon, uh, if you will Google list of Babylon 5 novels, the one that comes up and says babylon5.fandom.com, that seems to me to be the easiest way to find it. And it uh, has, I think, the most comprehensive and up-to-date list. It even includes the never-produced Mongoose novels, which would have been the third set. And we'll talk about that, I guess, when we get to the role-playing game way off in the future. But I'll just quickly tell you that um, Mongoose Publications did the most, I guess, most recent version of the Babylon 5 role-playing game. And they were all set to produce original Babylon 5 novels. 
And apparently they didn't have like JMS's permission to do that. And he found out and he pitched a fit. That is one thing JMS will do is he will pitch an ever loving fit. If you do something that he did not authorize, obviously. And so, uh, you know, he's famous for or infamous for going around convention dealer rooms and having security throw out stuff that was Babylon 5 related that was unauthorized. Um, he did that back in the day. And it's been a long time, and there's plenty of fan stuff now, but he used to do that. Um, and so uh, there were going to be several novels produced by Mongoose, one of them written by Claudia Christian. And as far as I know, they were never written. They would effectively have been fan fiction that was sold like actual books, uh, but they, the kibosh was put on them, and I think the license was taken away from Mongoose as quickly as possible. Fortunately, I've got most of their RPG books down here, these really nice hardcovers. Um, we'll talk about those on a future episode. All right, here's some good questions and comments from our patrons. Allison Rich, yay, Allison, she says, uh, yes, there are lots of other B5 podcasts out now. I've been listening to all of. I've listened to all. I've listened to them all. I'm sorry, I'm having trouble with my words today. I've listened to them all. This one is my favorite for a few reasons. One, you're you're fans and you understand the world building. A lot of these other podcasts are made by Trekkies coming new to the series and not understanding B5 at all. Two, yes, you tell jokes, but it's not as jokey as a lot of the others. Three, you understand history and religion and all that stuff which informs this series. I really appreciate that. And four, the structured format makes it hold together well. It makes it less random as a lot of the others can be. I appreciate that, Allison. I, that, I, I think that each of those things is something that we try to do, and it's good to know that maybe we're succeeding at least with some of our listeners. I do have to admit I'm curious about listening to what non-Babylon 5 people think about the show. And, you know, when we originally started this this show, Andy wasn't my co-host. It was Jared Albrecht, the art sale artist, who had never seen the show. And we just weren't able to keep our schedule together well enough to continue to, to do them. And so Andy and I basically started it over. But that was the original idea was that somebody that had never seen the show would watch it. And... Um, and, uh, and it is, there is always that interesting factor to that. Um, there have been some other Babylon 5 podcasts that tried to do that, and uh, they just ended. I guess the people lost interest and quit producing them, so that was disappointing. But Andy and I pre- intend to do this until we're done. Uh, either, the sh- <laughs> either we're done or the series is done. I guess that'll be just in time for the new show, so yay. Uh, Allison also says, I always read that Jerry Doyle was very irked by Michael O'Hare during filming the first series. I also read he could be rather cruel about it. I wonder if they weren't kept apart in real life to prevent tipping O'Hare's fragile state. His eyes looked so haunted sometimes. That's the truth. And maybe JMS constructed the story that way. That could be. Yeah, I agree that, uh, well, Jerry Doyle certainly had a very different personality from Michael O'Hare by the by time of filming this these two episodes, so that could very well be. Uh, Ice Cream Clone says, we are almost up to my first ever episode. Fortunately, it wasn't. Grace 17 is missing. Yeah, well, good. That might have been your first and last, uh, Clone. Uh, this two-parter blew my mind first time watching it. I just rewatched it while also recovering from COVID. I must admit my tolerances were a lot lower and ability to concentrate. But the 3-1 speech, and you may call me Valen, still blow me away. I completely agree. Keep up the great work. A hilarious episode. 
Thank you. Colonel Dad, and several people mentioned this, so I'll go ahead and mention it here. He says, did you guys notice the spacesuits worn in this episode were the same ones from 2001 A Space Odyssey? Yeah, I remember reading something about that, that they were just available, like the they were in a costume shop or something, and they grabbed them easy, and there were different colors of them. I remember there were different colors in 2001. So they ended up using the blue ones, I guess. Whereas in 2001, I think they used the white one, maybe, or something, or red. Yeah, like the more the reddish one. That's right. Anyway, it's been a while since I watched 2001. I need to watch it again. I've got the 4K uh, disc of, of 2001. I just haven't watched it in a while. Um, Comrade Sheridan, a.k.a. Blab Along Guy, says, I think the Earth Alliance Station bit, I, I, I referenced last time that Susan calls it the Earth Alliance Station, even though they're not part of Earth Alliance anymore. He, he says, was indicating that it was from a separate timeline or possibility, but it makes more sense that it was a continuity issue from season one footage being reused. And I think that possibly is true, and JMS is going to speak on that in just a couple of minutes. Uh, Colonel Dad says, hey guys, read the timeline. Sinclair, Sheridan, and who was supposed to leave when and where... It's science fiction, man. <laughs> well, I agree. There is always that's always the out. I mentioned that uh, before that R two D two climbing out of a hole in the wall about the size of a of a co- of a can of Coke is is science fiction. Don't ask questions. And he says, and by the way, great review. The time flew by. Thanks. Yeah, it flew by for Andy and me too. I couldn't believe that episode was almost two hours. Wow. I hope you guys don't mind the episodes running over an hour. By the way, um, I try to limit my my you know trivia and points that I do at the beginning, I tend to have a lot more than Andy. Andy's probably a lot smarter to just kind of hit the highlights and, and go on. But uh, that's what this episode is going to be, is just a whole lot of those that I couldn't fit into last time. So, um, all right, unanswered questions, our popular unanswered questions category. Um, and I do note here that some of this is addressed later on in the In the Beginning movie, but not all of it and not completely. So when Andy and I get to In the Beginning, we'll talk about some of this again, and we will revisit some of these topics. All right, so here's some unanswered questions. That's always fun. Um, why? And some of these are mine, and some of these I got from on the web and research and stuff like that. Okay. So why did the Earth Alliance build Babylon 4 in Sector 14? If they didn't, how did it get there? Uh, We know it could move under its own power, unlike Babylon 5, uh, but why did it end up in Sector 14? Uh, And and it seems like it would have been closer to Epsilon 3 because that's where the the great machine is that was doing the tachyon thing to make it be able to travel in time to begin with. So, I don't know. That was all... I would have thought the positions of Babylon 4 and Babylon 5 would have been reversed, right? That 4 would have been closer to Epsilon. I don't know. Um, I, these are, again, my, some of the, this is, that was my question. This is my question as well. Why did the Earth Alliance wait until the fourth Babylon station attempt to build one that big and powerful? What would 1 through 3 have been like? Would they have been more like 5? Would they have been more like 4? The... The, the story has always been that Babylon 4 was the biggest and most powerful. I'm just wondering, why was the fourth one the biggest and most powerful? You'd think after three failed attempts, they'd have scaled down like they did with Babylon 5, not up. So, I, I don't know. I don't know. Um, I've always felt like calling it, you know, having five stations was a little bit of a, 
concession to just being able to call the show Babylon 5. It made to me it makes more sense if I think I've said this before, right? If the first one was Babylon 1 and it was sabotaged, the second was Babylon 4 and it travels through time and the one we're on is with the show is the third one. But Babylon 3 doesn't work as well as Babylon 5, so that I think that's why. Um one of the one of the interesting things Andy and I got into when we were looking back at this was the closed loop that is the triluminary, that it was never actually built or invented. It just kept going round and round through time. I love that. There's another argument to be made that the name Valen is the same way, because why did Sinclair call himself Valen? He just pulled that name out. Presumably, he pulled that name out because he knew he would become Valen. But how did he know that? But how did Va- Ah, you see what I mean? I mean, how, if he names himself Valen because that's who the person was he was becoming, how did that person get that name? Because Sinclair named him that. Well, where did Sinclair get that name? Because he was named that. So it just goes round and round and round and round and round. And now we have to understand, we have to, I mean, we have to suspect that he wrote himself a letter, right? That, I mean, we, we, saw, that he, we, we saw that he wrote himself a letter. But we have to think that maybe in that letter he said, call yourself Valen. But again, where did the name come from? So, ah, it's time travel, man, time travel. Um, Oh, this is interesting. We know that the Great Machine was built sometime between the first Great War with the Shadows with Valen and, and, and the present 2260 that we're in in the current season. Um, or 2258, A Voice in the Wilderness. Uh, so at that point, the Great Machine has been on Epsilon for Epsilon three for like several centuries, but not a thousand years. So here is my question: Do, it, How did Epsilon three come to be? How did it get built? And here is my proposal: The Zathras who went back in time with Valen with Sinclair. After Valen was comfortably ensconced on Minbar and doing Valen stuff, Zathras traveled to Epsilon Three and started construction on the Great Machine. Ooh, so Zathras is the father of all Zathrases and the creator, the originator of the Great Machine. Now you might say, but Zathras doesn't seem anything like being able to do all that. Well, maybe he went back in time and then like recruited others who built it, but he knew it needed to be built. I mean, why else is it there? They've never given us a reason up till now of why the Great Machine is there. What is it doing? We know that somebody stands in it, and we know that it can send messages and can scan and can shoot out missiles and stuff, and it can create time travel loops. But why else is Epsilon 3, the great machine, there if not just mainly for the things it does in with Babylon 4 and, and stuff maybe to come? Well, there you go. Um, oh, yeah, yeah. So my question is, JMS says the Triluminary originally came from Epsilon 3, so that has to mean Zathras took it from Valen to Epsilon 3. And then from from there it went to Drawl uh, with with Zathras, and then it went from Drawl to Delin, presumably, and then from Delin it went to Sinclair, who became Valen, who had it back in time, and gave it to Zathras, who takes it to Epsilon 3, and you see, again, time travel, man, crazy. 
I also wonder if the triluminary name relates to Triplanetary by E.E. E. Doc Smith, which is acknowledged as an influence on this storyline. Interesting. Uh, let's see. How long did it take Sinclair to change into a full Minbari? How long was he traveling back in time? Um, you know, Delenn, it took weeks to become half human and half Minbari. So we have to wonder, did, he, did, it, did it take him so long to travel back in time that he had time to do the entire transformation? Or did he arrive back in time and then just kind of hang out there camouflaged and hiding out? until it was complete. And at what point did the Vorlons arrive? Was he still in the chrysalis? Were they there when he emerged? How did they know to come? Now, JMS has said that they probably knew to come because he called them. Well, that implies that he came out of the chrysalis before they arrived. So, okay. Um, but it's still an interesting question. Um, it's been asked by many. When the Minbari captured Sinclair at the Battle of the Line, they didn't know he was Valen, or else Delenn wouldn't have been told later to kill him if he starts remembering things because they never would have killed Valen. But they certainly knew he was special and connected to them, right? That's why they let him go and then insisted he become the commander of Babylon 5. Uh, or was it only that was only Delenn or the religious caste the ones that recognized him? We don't know. Um, we've talked about it before. Is he Delenn's ancestor? Um, and and one, of our, one of our listener questions was about that. Um, I also wonder what connection that could have had with the infamous ceremony we talked about in Parliament of Dreams where Sinclair and Delenn may have been married, allegedly. That's been mentioned before. But then JMS came in and said Valen did not have any children. And there's some difference of opinion over exactly what Valen's final fate was. And I point out to take what JMS says about things like this with a grain of salt because he did occasionally change his mind. And as the creator of all this, he has every right to change his mind. I know, you know, as a writer myself, my 20th novel just came out. You do, you know, what you originally planned. You know, they always say no, no battle plan long survives first contact with the enemy. Or as Mike Tyson would have put it, everybody has a plan until you get punched in the mouth. Um, so... Yeah, he has the right to change his mind, but he did say Valen did not have any children, which kind of closes off the idea that we talked about of Valen and Delenn being Delenn being Valen's descendant. But I still think it works, and it's one of those things that if it's not part of the official canon, I feel like it ought to be because it's cool. Um, there's other things that we've talked about and we'll talk about that fit into that same category of JMS says no, but I say, dang it, I want it to be right. So we can, uh, we'll see some more of those as we go along through the series. Um, I was just wondering, does any of this affect what we think of soul hunter looking back? What did the soul hunters actually know? And I think there's a couple of references later in the series about that, too, that I'm not going to give any spoilers here. But I think that, and I'm not even going to bother to mention this in the spoiler space, but I do think that later on in the series, however briefly, there is mention of the Soul Hunters and their reaction to, um, to um, Valen and all of that kind of stuff. So, uh, All right, I'm just getting something out of the way. Okay. Um, Delenn claims that Sinclair's transformation began the migration of Minbari souls to human bodies that ultimately led to the war. But in points of departure, Lanier says the soul migration has been going on for 2,000 years, which is twice as long as Babylon 4 went back. So, again, I mean, 
it's all kind of a mystery. Um, we do know that Valen was able to prophesy all the way up through the breaking of the Grey Council because Sinclair saw it and lived through it. But after that, Valen doesn't know what happened with the current Shadow Wars. He doesn't even know who wins. As far as Valen knows, as far as Sinclair knows, the Shadows win the second Shadow War. He doesn't know. That is why Sheridan, I guess, and Delenn are the one who are the one who is and the one who will be. I got something to say about that in a minute too. Um, so we have two Vorlons floating, one on either side of Valen at the end, and I'm assuming that they look like Minbari angels or something. I I don't know how the Minbari are perceiving them because again, presumably. Valen will teach the Minbari certain things that would make the Vorlons seem more, you know, religious to them. And yet, at that point, that hasn't happened. So, what did the Minbari soldiers coming on board Babylon 4, what did they make of, uh, of, the, uh, of the two Vorlons? Also, where was Babylon 4 when the Minbari found it? Did, did Sinclair move it closer to Minbari space? How did the Minbari happen to randomly come across it? Did he call them too? Did he call the Vorlons and then the Minbari? I don't know. There's a lot of questions there. Uh, I do always like the I do like the idea though that the Minbari have always kind of acted like the Vorlons are closer to them than to any other race, right? I mean, I'm not the only one that gets that sense. I'm sure, right? That the, the Minbari always act like the Vorlons. Well, I mean, nobody acts like the Vorlons are their allies or their friends, but the Minbari kind of project this attitude of, if the Vorlons were going to hang out with somebody at the lunch tables in the cafeteria, right, it would be the Minbari. I think we can agree on that. And this kind of, and I, this, this ties in with that, that they were cooperating with each other during the first war, and that two Vorlons were with Valen when the Minbari discovered Valen. So, okay. Uh, and speaking of the Vorlons, I had this question. When Sheridan has these flash-forwards in these two episodes, they don't seem random. They seem very specific. And I'm wondering, could the Vorlons have been somehow shaping what he sees, what he experiences? I don't know. Uh, someone asked, does Mr. Morden have a keeper? That's a really interesting question, and I'm not going to go into spoilers on it. But I'm curious... And I'm not sure that there are any spoilers to go into on it, honestly. So I'm just going to ask, do any of you listeners or patrons, do you guys have any thoughts on Mr. Morden having a keeper? Because I'm, ah, I'm not going to say anything. Uh, I had a little note here, because my notes here that I'm going through with you here are, are questions, they're comments, they're my thoughts, they're my random musings. Here's one of my random musings. If Babylon 5 were Ronald D. Moore's Battlestar Galactica, there would have been a movie about Babylon 4 in the first Shadow War with Valen and Zathras, and it would have been awesome. <laughs> but Babylon 5 is a different kind of show from that, and I understand that. That's not something JMS seemed interested in doing. There is a comic book miniseries, though, that touches on this. But I will add that JMS was later asked about it, and he said, I'd love to someday tell the story of Valen and Zathras in the most recent Shadow War. It's quite a tale, actually. Well, JMS... Let me just go ahead. I don't know if I'll be the first to say it, but let me be one of the many fans to say... 
I'd like to read that or see it or watch it or whatever. Please get right to that. Jump on that sh that story. As soon as you give us a great big novel completing the Crusade story. Um, let's see. Oh, I had another question. This is, again, another one of my questions. How did Zathras know that Sheridan is the one who will be and the beginning of the next story? How does he know that? Um, oh, this is an interesting point I found researching. The distinction between the three members of the one echoes the migration of Minbari's souls. Sinclair becomes fully Minbari. He is the one who was. Delin is halfway between human and Minbari and is the one who is. Sheridan is completely human and is the one who will be. So perhaps that's symbolic. Now, we can say that maybe that's symbolic and JMS is a genius, and that could very well be true. But on the other hand, there is the thing I've mentioned, I think, on here before about Sheridan and his wife or wives and JMS's reaction when, and I'm, again, I'm avoiding spoilers. And JMS pointed that out to him and he just stared and went, I'm smarter than I thought I was because he hadn't thought of that. So I think this could be another example of JMS doing something that in hindsight fits perfectly into that structure, but maybe he wasn't consciously thinking of it at the time. All right, and finally for this section, um, Zathras tells Sinclair and Krantz that the one has stopped B4's motion through time to let the crew off. But in World, World with, and War Without End 2, the station appears in 2258 by accident after Major Krantz uh, unexpectedly powers up the equipment. Um, and the idea of faking a power drop in the fusion reactor to cause the crew to evacuate was Ivanova's, not any of the one. So, okay, do with that what you will. Just a little tidbit. Um, again, I think it really has to do with trying to reconcile three hours of television over one episode that aired two, you know, two years before the next two is just difficult. And we're going to get into that here in just a second, because now we get into JMS Speaks. So here are a few things JMS has said about all of this. Uh, someone asked, did you write War Without End at the same time you wrote Babylon Squared? No, he says. I didn't write them at the same time, but I did a basic outline of what the follow-up would be so it would all match up when the time came to show that half of the story. It all has to hang together or it's kind of useless. It just required working out the details of what was, what is, and what will be. Then I walked on water, dot, dot, dot. So when he finished writing it, here's what he said on, online immediately. Yeah, he said that. And then he said, well, I finally finished writing the two-parter War Without End, which is probably the toughest thing I've written for the entire series to date. Given everything that has to fit in here and the fact that it's the other half of the B4 storyline, this ain't a spoiler, that'll be common knowledge in ads, uh, it became a pretty difficult job, more so than when I'd originally thunk it up. It's kind of like cramming 20 pounds of potatoes in a 10-pound bag. But I think I got it all in, even though the initial drafts came out about seven pages too long, and we're going to talk about three of those pages in just a minute. 
that's me as an aside. Uh, JMS says, as I commented to one person, quote, I'm definitely dancing on the edge of my ability here, unquote, but I'm pretty sure I pulled it all off and I think folks are going to be quite pleased, but man, that was tough, tough. Yeah. I love this kind of stuff because I love the idea that JMS as, as accomplished of a writer as he had become by 1996 or thereabouts, he's saying I'm dancing on the edge of my ability here to write something this convoluted and have it all match up and make sense. So that's pretty impressive. All right. He then went on to post, I guess, on a different forum. I've just finished writing uh, War Without End, which was a very difficult task given the amount of story and logistics that had to be put into it. Uh, while writing Babylon Squared, I figured, oh, sure, yeah, I can get this all in on the other side. No problem. But when it came time to do it, it got awfully tight. But finally, I fit it all in. Well, all except one teeny tiny sentence about where Zathras was first seen and how, because to do what I'd first had in mind would have taken another three pages, and I didn't have that. I didn't have time for that. That had, you know, time in the episode, he's saying. So that one, epi- that one element I'll have to just deal with later somehow, but that's it. Hopefully one need never have seen Babylon Squared in order to watch and follow War Without End which was one of the hard parts since Babylon Square may or may not be aired prior to this. All the background information had to be in these episodes. Um, We're going to get to what was in those three pages in just a minute. I don't want to jump around in my notes too much, so just bear with me here because it is kind of funny what he was going to do with those other three pages. Uh, It was kind of a funny scene. It's too bad we didn't get to see it, but he just didn't have time. Um. Somebody asked JMS about the kiss between John and Delenn. And remember, Andy and I talked about this on the last episode, that it was like the first kiss for one, but the not the first for the other. But it was just, oh, my head hurts thinking about it. JMS's reply was, I just can't do anything the conventional way on this show. Um, I think I have something else about that later, but let's keep going. Uh, JMS also says, the curious thing is that in just about everything I've ever written, I generally follow where I want to go, end up where I want to end up. But once I get into it, once the characters come alive on the page, I inevitably find better ways of doing things, stronger and more muscular paths to the story and more interesting side roads. Again, as a writer, I totally agree with that. That's every book I've ever written. There's a plan. And then there's what you actually end up writing. And it's always better. It's always better what you end up writing because in the process of living the part you're writing, you know, in your head, you, you're not just trying to think of what happens next. What happens next comes up organically. So yeah. Um, he said also, This original story was worked out in 1986-87. He says that's nearly 10 years ago as of that writing. And gosh, that's that's a lot. Let's see, 96, 06, 16. So as of this recording, that was 36 years ago that War Without End was first originally come up with. He says in the years between 86 and 96, I've become or like to think I've become a better writer, learned more, written more, picked up some new tools I didn't have then. So you have a situation where the writer in 96 looks at the writer in 86 and says, no, listen, there's a better way. Yes, we still get to Disneyland on time. You'll still have plenty of time to ride the Haunted Mansion, but if we go this way, we can stop off and also see Knott's Berry Farm and the Winchester Mystery Mansion and maybe even Hearst Castle on the way. You know, it's funny, again, an aside by Van, 
it's funny, but that's how I always metaphorically describe the process of writing. I say that I do enough outline to know how to get to here from here to Los Angeles if I'm, you know, metaphorically going to Los Angeles with my story, but I always allow myself to go off and see the Grand Canyon and go up and see Salt Lake City or whatever. You know, I allow myself the leeway to go where the story leads. And maybe we don't always end up in Los Angeles, but we definitely end up in a satisfying destination at the end. So uh, I totally agree and, and, and sympathize with that. Um, yeah, he says the destination is still the same, but I found a lot more interesting ways of getting there, which after all is what an outline is for a safe home base that allows you to wander off knowing that you can always return to it. If you get lost exactly now, he says foreshadowing is tough because it implies the audience is going to be there X number of years down the road to get it, you know, to understand. And you have to risk the audience going, huh? one time too many, and wandering away. But nothing good, he says, comes without risk. Uh, he says, these episodes were a good send-off for Michael O'Hare. And he says, at one point, Bruce Boxleitner said to JMS over lunch, with Michael sitting with us, hey, so how come he gets to go off and become the next best thing to God, and I get the crap kicked out of me? And JMS says, I shrugged and said, seniority. <laughs> So good for good for Michael and good for JMS. Sorry, Bruce. Um, oh, this is just a costume note that we talked about. Why does Krantz have a leather strap on his uniform when there weren't leather straps in the gathering? I think by by leather straps they mean like the, you know, after the gathering they went back and redid the the the, the Earth Alliance uniforms to put that leather piece asymmetrically on the front. And Krantz has that, but they didn't in. 2257 and JMS's answer I'm not going to quote it verbatim it kind of goes on and on but what he basically says is his his in universe explanation is that style changes go to some people before they go to some divisions of earth force before they go to others and he also came up with a clever uh, costume thing costume change rationale that we will see in crusade and I'll just leave it at that but he does make an interesting point here that Krantz is from the Marines Division, I believe, he says. Note the brown uniform. From that part, which functions sort of like the Army Corps of Engineers overseeing the building of space stations and the like. Interesting. I like that. That's kind of what we had figured out before, I think. Um Ah, okay, here's the three pages I said we would get back to. This is cool. In Babylon Squared, Major Krantz says they found Zathras when there was a flash and he appeared in a conference room. Um, JMS says, now I sketched out that scene when it came time to actually write it. What happened basically was that Zathras was passing by a room where he saw the one piece he still needed to finish his repairs on the time stabilizer. So he slips in as best he can unnoticed. Uh, this meeting goes on in the conference room as he's crawling under the table to get the piece of equipment. I, I, I got to say, I love the idea of like, Earth Alliance military figures having a meeting and Zathras is crawling around on the floor under their feet. Uh, he finishes just as there's another time flash, and as it ends, momentarily disoriented, he's discovered and captured. Uh, this would have matched what was in Babylon Squared, as I'd intended. Unfortunately, it added several minutes of screen time that I couldn't afford. I would have had to cut something else somewhere else, and that script was so tight it screamed at, it screamed as oh okay, and that script was so tight it screamed as it was. In other words, it was already 
too tight. So I had to fudge it uh, and and let that small inconsistency instant instant. See, it's it's hard to do this without Andy giving me a little breaks every now and then. <laughs> I don't do a lot of solo podcasts anymore these days. I usually have a a guest or a co-host. So. Uh, so JMS says, I let that small inconsistency go. The only other thing I could have cut, the one movable piece was Sinclair trying to radio Garibaldi at the end, and I didn't want to lose that. And I got to say, I agree. I will definitely take a slight inconsistency like Zathras appearing in a different room as opposed to losing that really nice bit at the end with Garibaldi. So that's cool. Um, let's see. Oh, yeah, so Andy and I did discuss the whole confusing thing about the space suit and Delenn and Sinclair and who all was in and Sheridan and who was in the suit and went where and what. One inconsistency, by the way, that, that JMS did mention was in Babylon Square, Delenn is wearing a red outfit and, in a, and a green one in this one, and he says we just couldn't match the colors and didn't want to fool with it and we just left it alone, so that's cool. Uh, but when Delenn takes off her stabilizer, she puts it on Sheridan Um at that point, um, he stabilized and she became unstuck in time. So it was she who appeared in the last sequence there. She took the risk to ensure saving Sheridan. I totally didn't get that. It all kind of happened so quick and with so much other stuff going on. I honestly didn't realize that Delenn had become unstuck in time and had saved Sheridan. It was I didn't even know that was Sheridan. Honestly, I mean, it's so confusing at that point with so many different people being in the spacesuit. And so many hands touching people and all that that I'm just like, okay, sure, cool, way to go, Delenn. But I had no idea. <laughs> uh, JMS says, when you see a lot of Vorlons together, that's when it's time to run like hell. Well, I can't. The Shadows certainly probably think that. Um, what did happen to Babylon 4 after the war? And he says, Babylon 4 survived the Shadow War, the original Shadow War, but in very bad shape, and it didn't last much longer after that. And again, I think there's a comic book miniseries that addresses that somehow. Uh, oh, this is cool. This is from George, uh, George Johnson, the co-producer. He says, there is this wonderful electronic surplus store down the street from where they filmed the show. And the place is swarming with art directors from all over the basin. I guess he means all over L.A. Our folks also frequent this place and came back one day with a box marked Interesting Shapes, $10. At any other place in the world, this would be a box of recyclables at best or a box of garbage at worst. In Hollywood, however, it is a box of tools for Zathras. <laughs> um, I love that. This is wrong tool. Never use this. No, very bad. Um, all right, I'm saving some more of the feedback for the patrons from the spoiler space, and here it comes. So... Jump gate activated. Headphones on, since I'm not talking to Andy, so I'm assuming I'm currently talking over the jump gate sound. Sorry about that. Uh, I'm going to go ahead and turn it off then because we don't. We, all, all we needed of the soundboard for this episode was jump gate activated and we, well, apparently we've done it. So let's get into the spoiler space. Um, this is our last little bit here. These are things that I couldn't say before. So spoiler space. Woot, 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 woot. Um, somebody asked JMS, does this episode blow away the mystery of whether or not Sharon goes to Zahadoom? 
And JMS says, who said there was a mystery about Sheridan going to Zaha Doom? Which is, I could have not put this in the spoiler space, technically. Uh, Kosh seems to treat it all as a fait accompli. So does Sheridan. It seems fated that he will go. The question is when and why and under what circumstances and what with what results. And, you know, JMS talks a lot about context and sometimes, in, in some cases, context is more important than what actually happens. And I think that's what he's saying here. He says, see, sometimes a story works in the shadows, so to speak. Other times we're right out in the open. We hand you the playbook and tell you we're coming right up the middle. And that's when you've really got to worry. Um. Andy made a good argument last time that Londo fulfilled all the remaining terms necessary for his redemption. He didn't kill the one who was already dead. He surrendered himself to his greatest fear, knew it would destroy him, et cetera, et cetera. He did all those things. So me, Van, my question is, what does that mean for Londo? Does it mean he gets to go to Centauri heaven now? Or will he just be remembered by his people as more of a hero than he would have before? Or just that he can die in peace rather than knowing everything is bad? I mean... We've, we've never really, we've talked a lot about Londo getting redemption, but we've never exactly debated what that would mean. So I'm curious to hear what Andy thinks about this. Maybe we can quickly touch on it next episode. What exactly does it mean for Londo to get redemption? Um, David Sheridan is mentioned this episode a couple of times. The younger David Sheridan, not the older, not the dad, the son. And I remember a little bit about him from the at least the last of the Peter David trilogy of novels. So I'm looking forward to reading them again to refresh my memory and all of that. But I do remember David comes up and he's a he's in terrible danger. There may be even I don't know. I mean again, this is spoiler space, but it's we we've 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 set the bar I think the, of expectations for you guys that this is spoiler space for the TV show. So I'm not going to violate spoilers for the books in this spoiler space. But Andy and I will get to the books, and I will reread them sooner or later, and we will discuss it then. But I do remember that there are some interesting things still to come with David, but not as much as you might have wanted. Um, though I think that, again, we're in spoiler space for the TV show, so I can say this. I do think season five comes right up to the edge on some of that. And obviously, Sleeping in Light happens after everything in the books and everything, period. So, And gives us some more closure on it. Um, do think it would have been cool if they could have had uh, um, Crichton from Farscape come in on that on, in Sleeping in Light and be like, hey, Mom and Dad, you know. <laughs> uh, although, I guess at that time, he would have been younger than... than um, Ben Browder, but I still think Ben Browder would be a, would have been a great grown-up David Sheridan. Um, did anybody guess, this is a spoiler for just a few episodes ahead, did anybody guess immediately after this episode aired that the person coming into the quarters who caused Delenn to drop the snow globe would be Anna? Well, the Lurker's Guide guessed it, because when I was reading some notes for this, they said, hey, this could be Anna Sheridan. I'm like, whoa, wow, good job, guys. Whoever was writing that for the Lurker's Guide, they nailed it. They got it. Good job. And I guess it was kind of foreshadowed a little bit, but still, I just think that's pretty impressive. Because I don't remember thinking that. Maybe I did. I don't know. It's been a long time. Um... Here's a question I had. Why did Delenn beg John not to go to Zaha Doom? I mean, 
we know why she does on a personal level. He, we don't want him to die and have 20 years and all that. But, I mean, doesn't he pretty much have to go to Zahadun because that's where he meets Lorien? And do they win the war if he doesn't go to Zahadun? I mean, wouldn't Delenn put... You know, there's, there's two characters in this episode that, that give warnings that they shouldn't. Um, Sinclair shouldn't try to talk to Garibaldi, I don't think. And Delenn should not say this to John. But I guess she had to because she loves him and all that. Okay. Um, here's another question I had. Is the vision that Lady Ladera had earlier in the series of Babylon 5 being destroyed, is that now a vision of just what happens in Sleeping in Light? A routine demolition. It's like she's going, this place will be destroyed. And they're like, uh, yes, ma'am, it's a hazard to navigation. <laughs> and she's like, oh, oh, never mind. <laughs> um. Did the council know that Sinclair was? Did the Gray Council know that Sinclair was Valen when they demanded he be Babylon 5's commander? We've touched on this a little bit already. Uh, they didn't know at the time. They were still trying to figure everything out. Probably, I think JMS said that. Some of them thought he was a false prophet. Obviously, that goes all the way up until the current current timeline. But that begs a question for me because JMS said some Minbari refused to accept Valen or Sinclair. And if he was actually a human, they wanted him killed to avoid becoming a false prophet and undoing Mimbari society. But some did believe it was him. This disagreement, in a sense, became the first loose thread in unraveling parts of Mimbari society. So here's, what, here's my question. Did Sinclair both bring the Minbari together as Valen with creating the Grey Council, but also begin the process that ultimately led to their civil war? That's amazing, right? That he brought them together tight enough to win the first Shadow War, but in doing so caused them to split apart and almost lose the second Shadow War and have a civil war that destroyed their society. So it's a darn good thing for Valen that Delenn came along, right? Wow. All right. That's all of my notes and questions and stuff. Uh, I wasn't sure how long it would take to get through all that. It's more than I normally go through in an episode, but these were not normal episodes. And without Andy here, this seemed like a thing to do. Uh, oh, last thing is I have three uh, patron questions that I thought kind of touched on spoiler stuff, so I'd save them for now. Colonel Dad says, this may be spoiler stuff, but when Emperor Londo pulls back the curtains and shows Sheridan the Burning City... You have to remember that he had rid Centauri Prime of Mr. Morden. Morden, you're insane, Londo. On any other day, you'd be right. But today, and the shadow, and, and of the shadows, but their minions were still around. I think they're the ones bombing the city for his betrayal. Now, again, this gets into the whole timeline thing. I, Colonel Dad, I completely understand what you're saying, but that's my thing. Um, the, I, when does everything happen? Because we know that men, we know that Centauri Prime is bombed by the by the Interstellar Alliance in season five in twenty two sixty two. Okay, we know that Londo and company eventually do liberate their world from the Drock. That's touched on in this episode as well as later, and in the books, right, and in Sleeping in Light. 
So we know that, and or I guess, yeah, after uh, um, objects in motion, objects at rest, too. And so that happens um, before um, the events of, well, I guess, I guess that, I, I guess what I'm having trouble with is I'm having trouble rec- rec- uh, reconciling the timeline so that why would I let me put it this way I could see Centauri Prime being bombed by the Drock after the events that we see with Londo in this episode but not before so I'm just going to have to go back and read the novels again and see if it makes any sense. I just don't understand why they've already bombed Centauri Prime before Londo breaks free of the Keeper and gets killed on purpose. I just, why is there stuff on fire before that when Londo is apparently running the world happily? And if it goes back to them killing Mr. Morden, the freaking Drock have been in charge of Centauri Prime basically since... Um, the end of season four, right? Or, or in the season five. So why did they wait 17 years to get revenge for Mr. Morden? See, I it just, I don't know. It doesn't make sense to me. Maybe somebody else has a better understanding and maybe Andy will hear this and he'll have a better understanding. Okay. Allison, uh, uh, Allison has a few more things that I wanted to move down here. She mentioned the spacesuit being from 2001. Yep. Several people mentioned that. Uh, also, I guess that as a lapsed Catholic, the one in three parts is the Trinity. There is JMS bringing a religion into it again. Bring religion into it again. Yeah, that's for sure. Um, thirdly, please do the comics in the review. They are awesome. And also, you must do book seven, The Shadows Within, by Gene Cavalos. And, of course, Kathleen Drennan's To Dream in the City of Sorrows. Those are both considered canon. I agree, and I've read them both. Spoiler, Delenn is a descendant of Sinclair and Sakai. Well, I I don't know about that. Because JMS has said Sinclair didn't have, the Valen didn't have children. Um, it's all very confusing. <laughs> and again, I give him license to change his mind. I like it, personally. Uh, lastly, not only did Sheridan and Sinclair, and again, this is not a, that was not a spoiler directly out of, of things. I, if from I remember correctly, there's things in the book that allude to something like that, but I don't think they ever specifically say. And, and Allison, if I'm wrong, correct me here, but I don't want to feel like I just spoiled anything from the books because I don't think it specifically says, but it's all very convoluted. And then lastly, she says, not only did Sheridan and Sinclair meet on Mars, but also during the Minbari War for Earth. Um, that's in the novel In the Beginning. Oh, okay. I don't think I ever read the novelization of In the Beginning, so I probably need to read that. And really finally, she says, when I did my first rewatch after a long time of not seeing it, I watched the movie In the Beginning between parts one and two. It fits really well. Oh, wow. Now, that's, that is not a place I would have thought of to slot In the Beginning in is between parts one and two of War Without End. That's... Interesting. I never would have thought of that. Very cool. Very cool. I wonder if anybody else has tried that. And then she says, great episode, guys. I love this podcast. We appreciate you so much and appreciate your all your good questions and comments. And we love all of you patrons and all of our listeners so much. And then finally, Michael Halbrook says, one of the episodes, or maybe in the beginning, does say that Delenn is a child of Valen. 
if you look at the triluminary, it seems to have an Earth Alliance comms unit in the center. I think that's Sinclair's as it was coded as DNA. That makes a lot of sense, too. Again, I everything points to Delenn being descended from Valen. And, um, and yet, JMS said that... <laughs> it's like everything points to the... You know, here's the other thing about that. Everything in the show points to the original plan being that Valen would do all this at the end of the Shadow War, the, the one we're watching now. And, of course, JMS has said, no, 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 it was never supposed to go that way. Uh, and I've read the original plot breakdown for Babylon 5 bef- when Sinclair would be on the show for five years. And it does not go anywhere I expected it to go. It doesn't go where it seems like it's going to go. It's very convoluted and odd. So I think this also, and this is my last thing for this episode, I think it all goes back to JMS talking about how he was a better writer in 1996 than he was in 1986 or before. And I think a lot of this stuff he just came up with years earlier. And, um, you know, it evolved over time. And a lot of the things that he says are gospel now, he might have changed his mind if he'd gotten to do another series or something. So there you go. All right. So I think we can lay War Without End, parts one and two, totally to rest now with one caveat. Andy gets to respond to anything here he wants to respond to next time, if he wants to. The White Rocket Babylon 5 Review Podcast will return in two weeks. Thanks again. This has been a White Rocket Entertainment production.